Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Santiago Suarez, co-founder and CEO of Addy, the leading point-of-sale financing platform in Latin America that's backed by Andreessen Horowitz, Foundation, Monashis, Wona, and Village Global. Originally from Colombia, Santiago launched his career in finance in New York City at JP Morgan and later moved to Silicon Valley for a leadership role at Lending Club. We talked about his entrepreneurial fintech journey, fundraising challenges, regional market dynamics, the virtues of applying an American credit scoring approach in Latin America, navigating regulation, the importance of company culture, and much, much more. And now join me in a fascinating conversation with Santiago Suarez. All right, Santiago, well, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Very, very excited to have you here all the way from Bogota, Colombia. Can we start excited by... Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Can we start by hearing a bit about your background? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. A little bit of my background, co-founder and CEO of Addy, and we'll talk about it in a moment, building the leading point-of-sale financing provider for the digital age in Latin America. Before that, I spent 15 years in the US, always in financial services and technology. Did my first startup 10 years ago. It was an AI company. Then spent six years at JP Morgan, where I really grew up professionally, doing strategy and a little bit of M&A, and building the new product development and emerging technologies team. And then most recently, I was at Lending Club, where I ran strategy and and M&A as well. And was also a part-time partner at Y Combinator, uh, focused entirely on fintech. So, Santi, sounds like you had a very interesting career, but it was mostly in the U.S. Why did you decide to go back to Colombia? I understand that you are from Colombia. And then why did you decide to launch Adi? It's a good question. I had always kept an eye on Latin America and Colombia. I would go back often. My family's here, obviously, and now I'm based between here and Houston. And I had always kept an eye on the country and the region. And what was remarkable three, four years ago was starting to see the boom in technology. Before anything on fintech was just seeing smartphone penetration. I joke that when I worked at McKinsey 12, 13, Jesus Christ, 12, 13 years ago, I would come down and I had a phone that no one else had here. I had like the latest BlackBerry and people were still trying to like figure out what a BlackBerry was. And fast forward 10 years and I started seeing that everyone had the same phone I had and that everyone had a phone. And you start seeing these crazy metrics of income growth, technology penetration, smartphone penetration, internet penetration, and yet no improvement at all in financial services. And that's what got me very, very excited. And the second I would say is, I always thought you needed to have a little bit of background to be a fintech founder. And part of why I went to JP Morgan, and part of why I then went back to the West Coast was kind of like my training to be an entrepreneur, if you will. And I was finally feeling like, okay, I'm ready. I've seen what I wanted to see, and now it's time to make it happen. So it was a combination of seeing great macro trends, a really big opportunity when it came to financial services and digitizing retail. 
And third, getting to the point in my career where I felt comfortable saying, I think I can build a world-class company. So speaking of building, what was your approach? Did you focus on recruiting local talent? How did you hire your initial team? And also, what was your approach to building the product? Let's take them in reverse order. Let's talk about the product first. I think you have to be a little naive to be an entrepreneur. And I joke that one of the challenges I had with starting a company in the US in financial services was that I had spent too many years at a bank and too many years working with regulators that I knew all the ways in which any idea shouldn't work. Like You can name a fintech that is now insanely successful, and I could give you the 27 regulatory problems that fintech would have in the US. And one of the great things about building the product in Colombia is, obviously, I knew I had some background with both product and fintech, but I didn't know enough. I didn't know as much about Colombia as I did about the US. So that was great because all we did when it came to the product was kind of old school, traditional product management research, right? Interview customers, go look at our competitors, really dig deep into what the problem is we're trying to solve. And then we sketched it out and we launched the prototype in 30 days. I mean, we incorporated the company in September 26th in Colombia. We recruited our first engineers that month, and we'll talk about it in a moment. And we were live with our first loan November 21st. And I think from there, we've just been iterating and improving as, as time goes by. As it came to the talent, the most important decision I made was recruiting my co-founders. So our technical co-founder, Elmer, I've known since we were five years old. And he started his career as a fixed income trader, went back to school, became a software developer, and then built, we believe, the first electronic trading algorithm and electronic trading platform in Colombia. And then Daniel, who is my other co-founder, were cousins. So we've known each other for a while. And he's had this incredible career at McKinsey, Southern Cross, and got his MBA in the US. And it was just having Daniel covering local business highly dynamic, Elmer being someone I trust with my life when it comes to technical decisions, but having deep financial services background that allowed me to say, okay, I think we got the right team. And then we just hired, you know, at the beginning, you, you should just hire engineers. So for the first six months, I think I was the only non-technical employee at the company. And I did everything from getting coffee, finding printers and calling customers. So let's talk a bit about the product itself, right? First of all, maybe have you had some pivots along the way? What was the product that you initially started with and what does it look like today? So the product is very, very simple. What we do is we offer financing at the point of sale. You can think of it as what a firm does or what Klarna does or what Afterpay does, but in Latin America. You want to shop, we do it both at physical stores and online. And in five minutes, we can get you a loan as low as $30, very buy now, pay later, two or three month duration, or as high as $7,000, 24-month loans with a fully baked underwriting if you're buying an expensive bicycle, a fertility treatment, and an elective dental procedure. We built it from the ground up to be digital, built it from the ground up to be totally paperless. We invested a lot in how we verify your identity because that is by far the highest point of friction in Latin America because of the region's problems with fraud. In terms of pivots, I got to be honest, we're very lucky not to have had to pivot. I think we've evolved our understanding of the market, but the product itself is the same product we launched. In fact, we had a front end that we built in those 30 days of craziness when we started the company. I think that was a front end that powered the product for its first eight months. 
And how has the customer reacted to the product? So we've got quite high NPS. We've got an 85 customer NPS, which is pretty high for financial services. And I think you see it in both our accept rates, which are industry highest, merchant adoption. We tend to be the most expensive provider for merchants, and yet they work with us because we really were the highest return on investment provider to merchants. And customers really like it, right? I think you come from Latin America. The biggest challenge in Latin America is paying. Paying is difficult. You have to stand in line if it's at the physical store. They'll ask you for your name three or four times, maybe your email. You don't want to give them your email. And one of the things we've done is reduce friction. You want to buy a pair of headphones, you want to buy a cell phone, how can we empower you to buy that as quickly as possible? And more so the case online, right? Where to buy, even using a credit card in Latin America is very, very tough. It's high friction. You have to put in a bunch of things. They turn you down. So customers have loved it. And we have seen it not just in NPS accept rates, which we're pretty proud about, but also when you hear from customers, right? We just celebrated our two-year anniversary and one of our customers sent us a video saying, Thank you. I was able to buy my washing machine thanks to you. And I'm very excited to be an Adi customer. So at the end of the day, I think one of the things that inspired me to move back to the region is when you build a company in the United States, and there are wonderful companies to be built, that's a great market. At the end of the day, you're solving a first world problem in a way. And I think one of the cool things about building a company in Colombia is you're solving real problems and you're seeing your impact not just on your metrics and your NPVs and your GMVs, but you're also seeing it when you speak to customers and they talk to you about what it means to have access to fair credit and to be able to buy the things they need. So, Sandy, definitely for a business like yours, customer service and distribution, super important. But also, you can't ignore the importance of your credit model, right? What are the main differences that you've seen from maybe credit models from your past experience in the U.S. versus approaching it in Colombia with, of course, a local approach? I would actually say that one of the things that I think we do well is we bring the American approach to our credit models. And in that, we were very inspired by what the Nubank guys did. Um, I think if I were to characterize the credit modeling approach in Colombia and Latin America, certainly for consumer credit, it's always been around loss minimization. Like we have no way to predict how people are going to do. We have no way to predict pricing. So we're just going to minimize losses. It just, the region has yet to go through what I call the Capital One revolution, which was the insight when Capital One launched in the 90s that you could actually price consumer risk and that you just didn't have to say standard pricing and loss minimization. So I think the biggest difference we have and I've seen is Everyone in the U.S. learned the lesson. I mean, Capital One is a multi-hundred billion dollar company because they figured how to price consumer risk. They still do an incredible job. And everyone adapted. You don't see that here. So at the very basic, just even the change in mindset is a huge advantage. Now, the second thing we do is we just support what works. Colombia is very unique in the region because it has fantastic viewer data. We've got positive reporting, which basically means we see not only when you're delinquent, but that you have been current. We've got great bureau coverage, negative reports as well, really good contact data, clean income data. So for us, it's really been a matter of like, let's grab all of these variables, put them in a mix and build our own model. And that's what we've been able to do, which has worked out increasingly well, let's say. 
And I guess uh, you you have to build a relationship with the regulator, right? And then, you know, for a long time, I would hear Colombian fintech entrepreneurs talk about the challenges of navigating the environment. But I also hear that recently it's gotten a lot better. What's your experience in the last year? So my experience has mostly been secondhand since, and I'll tell you about it, because one of the great things about building a lending company in Colombia is as long as you fund yourself institutionally, you do not need to be regulated. So we lend out of an LLC. Super nice. I don't need a banking partner. I don't need a license. I mean, I need to comply with all sorts of laws, some more honors than others, but I don't need to have that regulatory aspect. My sense is, I actually think the regulator has obviously become more and more engaged, but I also think that's driven not so much by the regulator, even though I think the current person running the superintendency is fantastic, has also been driven because of the fact that fintechs are maturing. I think you saw most of the early fintech companies in Colombia were what we call in Spanish, atirapiedras, which is the people that just kind of sit there and it's like down with the man, down with the system, regulation sucks. And when you look at the history of Ponzi schemes, and large-scale banking fraud in Colombia, you actually say, wow, the regulation is fairly appropriate given our apparent endless creativity uh, to come up with great ways of defrauding people. So I've always been very pro-regulator. I think the FinTech Association has changed their mindset, and I think they're moving. Now, we face some big challenges. Number one, it's a highly concentrated banking market. The two largest banking groups control over 50% of the market. And number two, the usury cap is fairly low. I think you, you have to be able to navigate both of those things if you're building a fintech company, particularly if you're building a pure play consumer fintech company. We're more of a merchant first fintech company, but if you're just focused on consumer, those two things should be high on your list of uh, worries. Yeah, I read, I think it's this week that the regular launched a fintech sandbox. So that's a step in the right direction, I guess. I think so, though I've never seen a sandbox that works. Like just in my career, you know, we, when I was at JP Morgan, we engaged on the UK sandbox and at Lending Club, I worked in some stuff around the OCC FinTech charter. I am, maybe this is my curmudgeon JP Morgan self coming here, but I'm generally very skeptical of sandboxes. I'd rather see forward thinking regulation and I'd rather see sensible regulation, and a lot of the regulation is actually sensible, apply to fintechs. Now, do you really need $30 million of equity capital to start a bank? Probably not. So yeah, let's give you a glide path like the UK does. But this idea that you're going to play under a different set of rules, and then somehow we'll blink our eyes, and then you'll be able to comply with these rules without a transition path in between, I just think it's challenging. Let's talk a little bit about your fundraising journey thus far. Um, definitely one of the most successful stories in the region. You, you, uh, you have uh, Andreessen Horowitz on board. You have Kwana. But of course, you didn't start like that, right? You, you, you started uh, on your own with a few co-founders. Uh, can you take us through this fundraising journey? And why do you think it's been successful? It's a good question. and. I'll be honest with you, I still don't know. I mean, I'll tell you what I think happened, but I still don't know. And the reason I say this is some of the people that are very, very excited about our current business were some of the same people that when I went to them a few months before with a different business, they were like, yeah, uh, we, we're not sure this business works. <laughs> um, but 
I think, first of all, we were very, very lucky to get Andreessen's support very early on. Andreessen committed to funding us when we were just an applicant. We didn't even have a company. We were, you know, I was emailing people out of my Gmail address. And I actually pinged Angela, who became our lead investor at The Seed, and she's a general partner at Andreessen. And I pinged her for advice. I said, hey, I'm raising a seed for this company. Here's the deck. Would you mind looking at it and letting me know who I should talk to? And then she said, yeah, sure. Why don't we get some coffee? I flew up to San Francisco. I sat down with her. And then she asked me a bunch of questions. We had a great conversation. I knew her from a while previous. And she said, we would love to do this to lead the seed round. And I almost fell off my chair. And fundraising when Andreessen Horowitz is leading your seed round is meaningfully easier than when Andreessen Horowitz is not leading your seed round. So I think that set us up in the right way to start our journey. I would highlight two things. And one is I'm very, very grateful for Quona for having stuck with us and closing the round in the middle of the pandemic because you know we closed that round right when things were looking really, really dire. But I think if I reflect back on the journey, on our fundraising journey and you know raising our seed, Series A, and then the Series A extension we just closed, I think there are two or three things that come to mind. The first one is recognizing it's a sales job and a storytelling job. I still remember when I presented to a very good fund a conservative case. And it was truly a conservative case. I had really haircut our unit economics, et cetera. And then the feedback came from them and they said, we just think unit economics suck. And what you end up realizing is that the investors are, know that you're putting your best face forward and they'll adjust accordingly. So you get zero brownie points for being conservative. Now, don't go lying and don't go saying things that are totally off base, but just put the best case forward and recognize you are selling your company. I think that's the first thing. Second thing is, especially early on, it's really about founder market fit. And there we had a very good story, right? Like, you know, I had done these crazy things in fintech in the US. I knew the majority of the investors I met and funded us, like I knew them from before. And if I didn't know them personally, we had very tight connections in common. You know, I had invested in fintech at that point for like three or four years. Elmer had the local knowledge, regulatory knowledge, and Daniel's like this machine of business energy with insanely deep local networks and, and just a lot of momentum. And then as we grew, the other thing that worked really well is know the market clearing price. I, I, I speak to this, I, I do a fair bit of angel investing, and I speak to this to, to my company. It's like, what, what is the market clearing price for a Series A enterprise SaaS company? Well, it's probably at least two or $3 million in ARR. It's probably LTV over CAC of 3X. It's a maybe not a repeatable sales process, but like, are we not clueless anymore about what actually makes customer excited about our product? Do we have three referenceable customers that people can call? So those boxes exist and you should know them and then adjust your price accordingly, right? I mean, if you want to go for a $300 million valuation, then know what that price is. If you want to go for a different valuation, know what that price is. And the last thing I'll say is just don't give up because it's a slog. I mean, it is one of the most exhausting processes you'll ever go through because you've got to a, be on your peppy A-plus game on the fifth meeting of the day. And then you should just be ready for most people to tell you that this thing that you're highly invested on, that you're really proud on, is not worthy of their money or their time. And just have the fortitude to say, thank you so much. And then go to the next meeting and say, let me tell you why this is the best opportunity you'll see all year. I think the old VC adage of ask for money, you get advice and ask for advice, you get money, is proven right. Most definitely in this case, though I will say I ask for advice. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Santi, let's talk a bit about company culture. This is certainly a, a topic that comes up often. You mentioned uh, Newbank. David Velez talked about company culture for 50% of the interview. How do you think about company culture uh, at Addy, and what is that company culture like? It's a good question, and it, it has many ways of answering them. I mean, I would start by saying the main reason I decided to start a company, and I strongly advise people not to start companies all the time. It's, I think it's just an insanely difficult journey. And for every, even the most incredible success cases you see, the inside story is so different than the outside story. So I would say, as someone who advises people not to start companies, the main reason I started the company was that I wanted to work at a place that I enjoyed. And, you know, after however many years of saying, ooh, I would do that differently. Ooh, I think this culture is kind of broken. Ooh, I'm not sure that's the way we should think about talent retention. Eventually you say, okay, well, let's, let's see what you've got and what is it that you have. So for us at Adi, it's always been very important to what we call our internal goal and our external goal. So our external goal, obviously, is build this incredibly successful financial financing machine, merchant partner. But our internal goal is build this great company to work at. And for that goal, it is very much secondary, whether we sell iPads, lending, whatever the case might be. I would say the first thing that defines our culture and what we think about the most is ownership. One of the very few Latin American companies that gives stock to every employee. So everyone from the people who make phone calls and try to speak to customers to the founding team has stock. And that basically means when we talk about our company, we don't talk about employees. We don't talk about Addy themes. We talk about partners and colleagues. That's what we look for. So the, I would say the most defining aspect of our culture is ownership. And that translates in, you know, we put our money where our mouth is and we give stock to everyone. But it also translates into the fact that you have people who really believe they own the place and act like. And an owner acts very different like an employee. An employee is given a set of tasks and objectives. An owner wants the business to succeed. And obviously, we think about, we really think closely about OKRs and objectives, but at the end of the day, you're an owner first and employee second. All of us. The second thing I think that characterizes our culture is conscious leadership. So, you know, five years ago, I started working with a conscious leadership group. It's this really cool outfit out of California where They've really spent a lot of time thinking about what it means to be conscious as a leader. And I don't mean just as a manager or a CEO, but literally as any person that wants to have influence in the world. So I partnered with them when I was at JP Morgan. They really changed, totally changed the way I thought about leadership and the way I engage with my teams. And we have brought that into Adi. So what does that mean? It means we do conscious leadership training for everyone that joins the company. It means our executive leadership team has access to conscious leadership coaches who work with them. And it also means we spend a lot of time talking about our fears. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the challenges in interpersonal communication come when you're scared. And it's not because you're an introvert and I'm an extrovert or you like graphs on the wall and I like writing. I mean, that's easy. But where communication really breaks down is when you're scared. Adrenaline shoots up, fight or flight terrified. And if we don't acknowledge that someone is scared and what causes them to be scared, it's going to be very hard to break that pattern. And that's what conscious leadership is about. And that's what we invest in. And we've made an investment since day one in that. I would say the third thing that characterizes, we spend a lot of time talking about integrity. 
and doing integrity, not just talking about integrity. Again, as a way of really driving forward an effective, low tension, and fast-moving company. The last part I would say that we we spend a lot of time talking about building and working in company culture is analytical rigor, but communication irreverence. So as we talk to each other, we're a very informal company. I would actually say we make fun of each other probably more than your average company, starting with me. Like there is usually a joke, uh, but we couple that with very, very high standards around rigor. And you know, there are companies that are much more, I would say, feeling oriented. There are companies that are much more market oriented. Uh, we're very much rigor oriented and data oriented. Well, everything you're describing sounds outstanding, right? But we both know that it's also very different from most companies in Latin America. How do you navigate the challenge of bringing someone with experience from you know, more traditional environments and then having them integrate uh, to the Adi culture? That is what I spend probably half my time doing. And it's thinking about that. I think there are two schools of thought, right? One school of thought, and it's funny, I I was speaking to a CTO of a successful Latin American company, and we're talking about some standard scaling challenges around infrastructure, uh, team management, team engagement. And he basically said, when I got to Latin America, I figured out that Latin American engineers didn't like initiative and didn't like ownership. So I just build my process to just be like, this is what I need you to code, and this is what I need you to get it done. And I mean, good for him. They're doing quite well, but that is not our approach. So we do two things when it comes to adapting. The first one is our interview process is very, very comprehensive when it comes to cultural adaptation. So either Daniel or me, we interview every single person at the company before they join, and it is entirely a cultural interview. And what are we looking for? We're looking for ownership. We're looking for integrity. We're looking at a lot of self-awareness, curiosity. Because if you are someone who has this ownership mindset, is self-aware and curious, that person is going to thrive in this environment. So the first thing is, do you have the right interview process? And that's very, very challenging. And we're constantly improving. And like every good startup, every six months, people were doing well six months ago may start hitting a limit on their jobs. So you kind of got to figure that out. The second thing we do is we invest a lot in terms of onboarding. So Come here, spend three hours learning about conscious leadership. Spend an hour with me talking about what I call ownership expectations. Um, we also do an hour-long session explaining stock options. Like, what does it mean to get a stock option? Like, you know, you're a call center operator. You're making a little bit over minimum wage. And suddenly we're telling you you have stock options. Most Latin American CEOs will tell you that's a terrible idea. We actually think that it is a terrible idea if you don't follow through and sit them down and just have a chat. I lead that where I say, hey, welcome to the partnership, right? Welcome to being co-owners. You are now my co-owner. These are my expectations of my fellow co-owners. And then a bucket load of communication. I send a weekly message Sunday afternoon. We also send a memo around the business where it is. We do a weekly all hands. We have a very strong and over quote unquote overdeveloped people team and over index on cultural matters. And then having the right leadership in place. So one of the very first decisions we made when we started the company was we decided the company would be run in English. And at the time, it was a bunch of Colombians. It was hilarious because, you know, you're speaking Spanish all the time, but every document goes in English. And the reason was we knew that at some point we would want to bring international talent. So our head of risk is 
this incredibly sharp dude, grew up at Capital One, graduated with honors from Cambridge in like chemistry, then worked at Zopa, which is a fintech company in the UK that over a billion dollars. And now he came here. So that's the other way you start bringing culture. You know, we've hired a few of these folks that speak in English. We obviously just opened the Brazil office. So that has helped as well. And it's really about hiring the right people, onboarding, constant formal communication, but also bringing those cultural influencers that can bring that, uh, that, can bring that perspective to the table. But it is, it is, as I said, one of my biggest challenges every quarter. That's something I work on. Now, transitioning to probably the elephant in the room, which is the COVID crisis that we are experiencing that really has, uh, has affected every single company out there and every single consumer, right? How have you navigated this, this turbulent times? And more importantly, I guess, how have your clients experienced this, uh, this whole situation? COVID for us was one of the most challenging times, if not the most challenging time for us in our short history as a company. But I, I also say to the team that we're going to look back at 2020 at the year that made the company, the year that really allowed us to focus, to narrow some things that we had kept open and to build a fantastic machine. You know, I started my career in 2007 at McKinsey and quickly became the credit crisis McKinsey analyst. So I worked on the city $300 billion bailout. I worked on Wachovia, which was bought by City or Wells Fargo, one of the two. Washington Mutual, we went under. Uh, they were all my clients. So when this happened, I immediately kind of switched back to 2007. And the first thing we did was we brought down origination volumes uh, meaningfully. Uh, delevered the book because we knew that we're not going to need leverage in a while. And why do you keep paying interest? So we delivered the book and launched a borrower relief program. To be honest, I thought we were going to be in a very difficult spot. I thought, okay, you know, we'll be lucky if we break even, knock on wood, but let's do the right thing by the customers. Let's do the right thing by the clients and go from there. We invested a ton on servicing infrastructure in, during that time. So, you know, we launch a refi program. So that's when you grab your customers and you give them modification of their loan terms, extensions, et cetera, via WhatsApp, fully automated to handle the volume. We changed the way we did calls. We implemented what I would say the most comprehensive borrower relief program in the fintech world in Colombia by far. It was basically mirroring the banks, offering skip a pays, term extensions, settlements. And I think looking back six months later, we'll end up making money on the COVID book which we're very proud of. We offered meaningful borrower relief to thousands of our customers. Thousands of our customers took, took advantage of settlements, took advantage of skip a pays, term extensions. So we really helped them out in a moment that, that we thought we needed to step up and help them out. And then with our merchants, we kept the communication open, right? We brought down volumes. We closed a bunch of originations because the nation went into lockdown. So our physical channel just shut down. And you know, we started reopening in April. We've been growing 100% month over month uh, since then. So we're now back uh, with the spring in our step, better pricing. Customers were happy and, and we were able to help. Of course, we couldn't help everyone, but at least we were able to help thousands of them and with a very bright future ahead. So it really forced us to get our act together, focus and, and pull together as a team. But I think we came out of it much better than I would have thought if you had spoken to me in April. And it sounds like you're not only growing in Colombia, but uh, internationally, right? Uh, talk a bit about the road ahead and particularly as it relates to Brazil. So the road ahead, I'm actually hopping on a flight in a few hours to go to Sao Paulo. 
We just opened the Sao Paulo office two months ago, a month ago. One of our co-founders, Daniel, moved to Sao Paulo. And we expect when I was a general manager soon, which I'm very excited about. We got into Brazil opportunistically, to be honest with you. I always thought Mexico would be the second market. In January of this year, we were approached by a company that was selling itself in our space in Brazil. And it was one of these deals that I think startup M&A is one of the silliest things you can do. But the deal just made sense for a number of reasons that we can talk about. We went to Brazil three times in the course of 30 days between January and February before the airspace closed. And it was awesome because I think everyone thinks of Brazil the same way people think about Japan. You know, at JP Morgan, we used to run Asia X Japan and Japan was this thing. And then the rest of Asia was run out of Hong Kong, but Japan needed its own management office because Japan is so different from Asia. And everyone always talks Asia X Japan. And you talk about Latin America X Brazil or Spanish speaking Latin. But once you go there, you actually realize it's no, it's not Japan. Like it is Brazil, of course, that they have an incredibly proud culture, obviously different language, different way of looking at the business. But it's people and people who have the same desires that Colombians do. They want to be treated fairly. They want to have access to great products. They want to have access to good financing. And they're moving to the digital world and the banks and their financing alternatives are not moving with. And what we saw in Brazil was a gigantic market really willing merchants and excited merchants, a great economic opportunity in terms of margins for any lending business. And one of the things we had done when we did our seed round was we got money from Monashis, which is, I would say, Brazil's premier venture capital firm. And that was with this in mind. So it also was really helpful to have Monashis and Kona at the table, both of whom have back probably, I don't know, two-thirds or three-quarters of the Brazilian fintech world working with us and saying, this is what we see. And there are a number of things that we liked about Brazil, right? I think we've talked about some of them. We love that there's an installment payment culture. I think a lot of people say, oh, in Brazil, everything's already installments, so no one needs installments. Our experience in Colombia has been the opposite. In Colombia, we also do credit card payments on installments. When you swipe the card, they ask you how many installments you want to pay it on. And what that means, it's a lower barrier to adoption because people know exactly what you're offering. But you have some benefits that a credit card does, and you're tightly integrated with the merchant and the retailer. So I think we combined all of that, and we we got very, very excited about the market. Uh, they're launching real-time payments. We get very excited about matching real-time payments and financing together. We think that's an incredibly powerful offering. So looking at all of that together, we actually wanted to go in before COVID, but you know, aerospace shut down. We ended up not buying this company, and a few months later, we're ready to go. Great. And you're ready to go? But now you are buying the company. No, we no. we're going organic. You're going we're doing organic. This organic. Yeah, we're doing this organic, and, and we're very happy about that. So that's why Daniel moved. We've made two hires in Brazil. We're looking to make five more in the next thirty days, and our head of risk is moving to Sao Paulo. So we really see Brazil as a second headquarters, basically, and we're we're putting. I wouldn't say all of our chips on the table because Colombia remains by far our biggest market. It'll probably remain that way for the next 12 to 18 months. But we see an incredibly bright future in Brazil. Outstanding. So, Santi, you, you've been an entrepreneur now for you know, over two years. You have experience also working in large corporations. I think you're well positioned to maybe give our listeners a bit of, maybe not advice, but some of your reflections as an entrepreneur, like particularly fintech entrepreneur in Latin America, which 
holds a lot of promise, but also has its unique set of challenges. I try every week to sit down and write, what did I learn this week? Just to keep these things fresh. So I would say the most important reflection I can give you about entrepreneurship is assuming you have the right market. Let's assume you have the right market. Team is 99% of your job as CEO. Maybe comms. So I, I joke, I'm like, I'm like, all I do is HR and comms. But I, I think time and time again, I'm reminded and surprised to relearn the same lesson. Team matters. And when I say team matters, it's very, very simple. I borrowed this expression from one of the Rappi founders who says, every problem is a recruiting problem. And I think he's totally right there. And I've seen it often, often, often again, like, you know, product. You know, we were spinning our wheels for a couple quarters, trying to really move some metrics. You know, we swapped the person, boom, 90 days later, the metric doubled, conversion doubled. So it on fraud, I've seen it on risk, I've seen it in sales, I've seen it in finance. Same company, same limitations, same constraints. You swap the right person for the, for, for the job, performance increases. So now the challenge is, A, hiring the right person. Be the right person today is not the right person tomorrow, and the right person tomorrow may not be the right person today. So that's where it, it gets magical and interesting. And B, defining the job so you can give the highest chance of success to the person given their strengths. So I would say the most important thing, and I, I see this every day, is get the right team. Also, team is leverage. You know, team is leverage. Like as, as CEO, if you have the right team, you can actually focus on what matters and the things that only you can do. But if you say, no, 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 I got to get this model done and then I'll hire the finest person, you know, squeeze by for three, four weeks without a model, put a finest person, you'll, you, you don't have to do the model. Yet. So it's just a very simple example of the power of leverage. The second thing is, I think it's, you know, I think in the US, you have such a big market that you have to go really vertical and being vertical can lead to multi-billion dollars venture backable outcomes. I think in Latin America, my rule of thumb is you have to be broad and you have to be in Brazil or Mexico to build a venture backable company. There are great companies, there are multi-billion dollar companies that don't do that, but they are not venture backable companies in my view. And in my angel investing, my biggest worry is always, are you getting to Brazil and Mexico and is your market big enough? Because the Latin American TAM is huge, but the in-country TAM of any country other than Brazil and Mexico is not huge in itself. So either you go really, really broad and capture a massive swath of the country's market, or you say, I'm going to do this, and then I'm quickly go to Brazil and Mexico. Comes down to the market. Santiago, so something we like to ask to virtually all of our guests is to tell us a bit about their hobbies and how you spend some of that time outside of Adi. I'm sure you, you have some interesting hobbies. Yeah, so this is an easy one for me, even though I will say with quarter ending, board meeting, and a couple other things that we have in the stove right now, hobbies have been slightly deprioritized in the last few months. I love the mountains. I absolutely love the mountains. Between JP Morgan and Lending Club, I actually took a year off to climb. So I shut down my New York apartment and I lived out of a suitcase for 12 months, or maybe not a suitcase, it was more like a duffel bag. I just climbed around the world. Uh, you know, I went ice climbing, I went rock climbing, I went mountain climbing. I just love the mountains. Like, like to me, being in a mountain is the most amazing thing you can have. And if that mountain has snow and it's steep and you have to like 
whip out a couple of pickaxes and just like get up a steep cliff using your pickaxes, that's absolute nirvana. So I love it. You know, one of the challenges I think with alpine climbing or ice climbing is that it's actually fairly dangerous. So it's very easy for you to lose that judgment and that kind of feeling for are things off or not. But one thing I've noticed is while I'm busy building the company is uh, you can get a lot of the same fix just being in the mountains. So I love to trail run, you know, technical scrambles. Uh, occasionally I'll, you know, put a rope and go climb something that looks okay. But just being in a mountain with snow and steep, man, that's absolutely wild. And there are many, many lessons you can learn from risk management in a mountain context to building a company and certainly a risk company like, like a lender. So for when we publish the story, you have to share a picture of you in a mountain. Yeah, oh, thrilled. Happy to. There are multiple. I mean, that year was fantastic. I mean, I just went from being this crazy New York overwork person to being this guy with a beard climbing mountains out of a, of a van. That doesn't sound too bad. That doesn't sound too bad. Well, Santiago, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a real treat. No, we do appreciate it. Best of luck with all the exciting things you guys are doing at Addy. And, you know, next time you're around Philly, do stop by campus, at least when we're back to normal. You got it, Miguel. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I had a blast. So really appreciate uh, being here. Gracias, Santiago. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 